0: The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about
1: Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. We are in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abayud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Can we give him a round of applause? I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. If the content was boring, the delivery was on, on point. Um, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Uh, I'm excited. I have so much kind of like pent-up energy in starting this series. And so, just like, I need to take a deep breath and remember that God is with us. He's here. Um, we're going to be jumping into the series here in a second. Before we do, we've mentioned we created these study journals. Um, unfortunately, we, we submitted to the printer, ordered hundreds of copies of these study journals, and the printing company had some issues with their binding machine. And so, we got like a hundred of them. And so, we've distributed them throughout the services, and they're all gone. They're just like… Uh, I lost them really fast. So we'll have a lot more uh, next week. We'll have hundreds more next week. So sorry for that. I feel like a lot of people have been asking the question. So I'm just answering it for all of you at the same time. Uh, There are no more left. We'll have them available next week. Um, Let's take a moment. Um, God is with us. Jesus promised at the very end of Matthew. In fact, it's the last words of Matthew. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, And he was saying that for us right now to know that he's with us. Jesus Christ, who we just read about his ancestry, um, he's with us right now. He's the king of the world, and so let's calm our hearts before his presence and ask him to work in power through the Spirit. Um, Jesus, we are so thankful. I'm so thankful for your faithfulness to us, so thankful for the way that you pursue us, that right now we can gather together, um, and we know because you promised that you're with us, and so kind of hanging on to that promise, I want to ask that you would walk among us and that you would do powerful things through your Spirit this morning, Um, that you would help um, the weary to find rest in your love, that you would help those who are wandering to hear your voice to come home, that you would help uh, those who are feeling stuck in life or maybe caught in shame to find forgiveness and cleansing and healing through your blood, that you would In power, help us to see your glory and your beauty and the goodness of your kingdom, and that you would liberate us. Um, As a church, we're praying um, not merely uh, for kind of a series where we learn interesting things about you, but we're praying that you would unleash power on us, that we would be a people that live for your kingdom and for your glory and for your name in the city. Um, Denver is yours. Colorado is yours. America is yours. The nation's are yours and we want everyone to know you as king but we need you to pour out power on us that your kingdom and your glory would be things that we treasure and that we live our lives for and so holy spirit would you work in power among us in christ's name we pray amen the book of the genealogy of jesus the christ the son of david the son of abraham um, these are the opening lines of not just the gospel according to Matthew, but they're the opening lines of the New Testament. Um, there are words that have been shaping people and generations for years and years as people say, who is Jesus? I want to learn more about this person that people are worshiping, that people talk about, and they will open up their Bibles, and maybe they have a friend that says, hey, why don't you start in one of the gospels? And they open up to Matthew, and they read the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, This is how Matthew's opening up the gospel because it gets right to the heart of what his whole gospel is about. And I just want to start here and say, this is what the whole gospel of Matthew is about. It is offering to us good news that Jesus is the king for whom your heart is longing. He is the king for whom your heart is longing. And he has come to establish a kingdom for which the world is waiting. The whole world, all people everywhere, have in us a longing, an anticipation for the world made right. And that longing is a longing for the kingdom of god and matthew is a story where he is setting up jesus not as a mere historical figure not just as an interesting teacher not just as a moral exemplar he's he's lifting up matthew as good news for you this is the king for whom your heart is longing and he's come to establish a kingdom for which the world has been waiting and waiting and waiting like on tiptoes all of your hungers all of your thirsts all of your desires are ultimately longings for the kingdom of god And Jesus is the king who's bringing the kingdom. And that's what Matthew's all about. Now, all throughout the story of Matthew, Jesus is going to be going, showing what the kingdom is like and showing what he's like as a king. And it's a different type of king and it's a different type of kingdom. He's a a bit of a upside down king, establishing a bit of an upside down kingdom when you set it up against not just our own kind of expectations of what a king should be like, but even against the expectations of the people of Israel and what they thought the kingdom of God would be like. And all throughout the story, as he goes, you begin to see the way his power and his presence brings transformation and restoration to people and individuals and families and communities and cities and nations. And as he goes through the story, there's this repeated refrain all throughout the story as he cries out to person after person, you, follow me. I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. This king is going, showing what the kingdom of God is like, and it is inviting all of us to follow him, to trust in him, to give our allegiance to him, to orient our lives around his presence, to submit our lives to the goodness of his reign, to watch the way he lives, watch the way he loves, watch the way he serves, watch the way he heals, watch the way he speaks, watch the way he cares, watch the way he draws in these people with tenderness and confronts these people with authority. Watch his life And model your life after him. That you would like be an apprentice to the king. And it's a powerful story that's going all throughout Jesus' life saying, he is the king you've been waiting for. He's establishing the kingdom of God. And he's inviting you and me to be a part of it. And that's really, really good news. And that's what these first verses of Matthew bring us right into the heart of the whole story. Uh, The genealogy can feel a little bit boring. It is loaded with themes. But this first line in particular um, is pretty stunning. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to unpack one idea from this first line, and then one idea from the genealogy. And we're going to look at this, and these are themes that are going to be carried all throughout the whole story, the whole series through Matthew are going to be revisiting and unpacking and developing these two primary themes. And the first one is this, and it might feel simple. We're going to talk about why it matters, but it is good news. Jesus is establishing the kingdom of God. I have good news Jesus is establishing the kingdom of God. You're like, okay, that feels compelling and exciting. Uh, Why why does that matter? What does that mean? I want you to to see what Matthew's doing right here in the first verse. If you close the Bible, open it back up or turn it on, I want you to see this, the the words Matthew uses to open up this gospel. Here's what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Um, this word genealogy, we're going to talk about it more in a minute, it has a lot of different kind of like, it's a very loaded word, but one of the translations could be the origins. These are the origins of Jesus. And so if you're familiar with origin stories, maybe you're, fam- you're a fan of Marvel movies or something, right? And you're like watching the origin story of Dr. Strange and the origin story of Iron Man, the origin story of all these people, and then you get to these moments, these stories where you're going to see something like Infinity War, Endgame, and it's taking all these different themes and it's bringing them together. And if you know the origins of these key players, if you know where they've come from and what's going on, not only does the whole story make sense, but the kind of significance of those moments and those kind of culminating scenes are are loaded with power. And that's a, a little bit of what Matthew's doing right here. In fact, over the first four chapters, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11 or 12, Matthew's going to be laying out the origin story of Jesus. He wants you to know where he's come from. He wants you to know about his ancestry, the story he's entering into. He wants you to know about his family and the way that God has brought him into this world, because it's a powerful story. And it shows us something about the nature of the kingdom of God when we look at the origin of the king. What's interesting is it's the origin of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you're new to Christianity or i have never really paid attention, it's important to know Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's not like Mary Christ and Joseph Christ got married and they had a baby and they named him Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, that's, it's not a last name, it's a title. Uh, it's a title. The Greek word Christos for Christ is a translation of a Hebrew word for Messiah. It's Jesus the Messiah. It's Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the one that the world has been waiting for. Jesus, the one that we've been anticipating. Jesus, the long-awaited king. He's presenting Jesus out of the gate. He's not like, hey, I'm going to wait till you can kind of figure out, I don't know, is he just a good teacher or is he like a good moral example? Matthew's like, no, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And the whole story is about this king and his kingdom. It's a powerful opening line. Jesus is the king, but he's a king that's come into a kind of expectation. He's come into a story, and so he explains he's not just Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the king. He's the king who is the son of David. Um, David was a previous king in the history of the people of Israel. Roughly a thousand years prior to the birth of Jesus, David was king, and David was the kind of greatest king Israel had ever known. In fact, a lot of Israelites, when David came, came, it's like, is this the king that's going to establish peace and security and secure our borders and make sure everything's healthy for the kingdom of God? Is this the king who's going to do that? And they're kind of like waiting and waiting and waiting, and David's like dominating, and everybody's excited about him, and then he looks out of his window and sees a woman bathing on a roof, and he goes down, and he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant, and he's ashamed and terrified about what this is going to do to the kingdom and his reputation, and so he calls her husband, Uriah, back from the war, and he has, tries to get them to have sex with each other to cover it up, but he won't because of various principles that he was holding to, and so then he was afraid, so he had Uriah killed, and that's, that's David, and so is he the king? No, <laughs> he's, not, uh, he's not the king that's come to make the world right, you know, like he's got he's got a darkness in his own heart. Like he needs, he needs a king. Uh, He needs a savior. And yet he was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that God would, from his family tree, from one of his descendants, bring a king who would reign forever and ever and ever and establish the kingdom of God that the people had been waiting for. So that promise was made to David. And Matthew is saying, Jesus is the son of David, the king who's come to reign forever who's not compromising integrity, who's not abusing power, who's not sinfully turning from the reign of God and hurting people. He's the king we've been waiting for. And then he says he's the son of Abraham. So he backs up further another thousand years, rewinding another thousand years, and he gets to Abraham. He says, this is the one we've been waiting for from Abraham. He's an offspring of Abraham. Well, God had made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham and one of his offsprings would come and bring blessing to all the nations of the world. Bring blessings to all the nations of the world. This is a promise made to Abraham that through this man, Abraham, who was a father of Isaac and who's a father of Jacob, that Jacob became Israel and the Israelite people grew. One of these Israelites, a long way down the road, would come and bring the blessing of God to the whole world. And you're like, all right, this, is this a biblical theology lesson? Yes, um, that's exactly what this is. Um, teaching the story of God, because you have to understand the significance of the story that Jesus is coming into to understand the significance of this moment for us right here today. When you look at the the promise made to Abraham, and this is this concept that people from every nation, including nations like the United States of America, including Mexico, including Canada, including all the countries in Central and South America, in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, in Australia, all the countries of the world, all the nations, all the people groups, groups, all the ethnic groups— experience blessing and restoration and hope and life through an offspring of Abraham. And Matthew is saying, Jesus is the one. And the story is about him. It's about who he is and what he's come to do. What's interesting is we we read about the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is is using all of these genealogies. If you were here a few years ago when when we preached through Genesis, I'd always get really excited about genealogies. I Weird, and I like them. and uh, And and part of what's happening in genealogies is not just like, it's not like an Ancestry.com moment. Like, hey, we just want you to know, like, who's a part of your family tree, and just like, it's not like, to kind of like you're interested in a bit of your story. It's actually tracing a really important promise. If you go back before Abraham, all the way to the very, very beginning, there's this there's this powerful moment where we see the creation of the world, and God stands as the King Creator. This creator king, and he creates a kingdom, and he creates humanity to be his vice regents, to reign with him on his behalf, to walk in his presence, to experience his love, to rest in his care, to, to trust in his sovereign power, and to represent his character as kind of rulers on earth, exercising dominion and cultivating culture and, and building cities and establishing families and filling the earth and flourishing in abundance and peace and hope and love and righteousness. This is the kingdom kingdom. And humanity said, we're going to take the world and we reject the reign of the Creator. And and in rejecting the reign of the Creator, we're going to push against that authority and we're going to essentially mount a coup where we try to take His kingdom and the stuff of His kingdom and we use it for our own selves, our own name, and our own authority in opposition and rebellion against the King. And we talk about this story all the time, but it's so important. Matthew wants us to remember. It's like, well, where does it talk about creation? Well, actually, the opening words it says the book of the genealogy. Um, the first two words of the New Testament are Biblos Geneseos, which is the book of the Genesis. And it's the same words in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, shows up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where, where like Moses is saying, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is where the world came from. This is where creation came from. I want you to know where creation came from. Then it shows up again. In Genesis chapter five, verse one, where it says, these are the generations of Adam. And it takes the family lineage of Adam and it moves and moves, eventually getting to Abraham, eventually getting to David, eventually getting to Jesus. And what Matthew's doing, which is so important for us, I'm gonna talk about why it matters. If you're like, all right, well, I'm, I'm losing it. It's so important. What Matthew is saying is Jesus is the king for whom every human being was made to worship. And he's come to establish the kingdom that every human being was made to be a part of. He's come to reestablish like a whole new creation. It's a new genesis. It's a a new beginning. And he wants you to know that you need to think all the way back to the beginning of the story. And so when you go all the way back to the beginning and humanity rejects the reign of God and is exiled from the kingdom of God, they're essentially kicked out of the kingdom because they rejected the king. And they come in this conflict. And God makes a promise that an offspring of this woman— Eve, will eventually come and will defeat the enemy of God, this serpent who is tempting people to turn away from God's reign. And that moment, this is Genesis 3.15, has set the trajectory for our world ever since. That humanity, and I want to to paint this picture for you what this means today, that humanity separated from the kingdom of God, rebelling against the reign of God, attempting to take the, the raw materials of creation and make our names great. We are doing so, building whole new kingdoms. And so this happens in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And by the time you get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, there's this moment where humanity is saying, we're rejecting the reign of God. We're going to make our names great. We're going to gather together. We can do this. And God, as a punishment to their rebellion, scatters them across the face of the earth. Okay, now, this is the part that's like gets a little weird um, for people that maybe have a, have a basic idea of what this story is about. God spreads the people across the face of the earth and actually subjugates humanity to rulers and authorities and spiritual powers that have dominion and exercise dominion over every nation on earth. That every nation, every people group, every culture is experienced, and this theme is all throughout the Old Testament, is experiencing life in a different kind of kingdom, not the kingdom of God. But in these various kingdoms, in every nation, every geopolitical area, every culture, uh, humanity is trying, attempting to forge life, to make our way. And there are spiritual powers, there are human rulers, and there are spiritual powers at play that are keeping people away from the reign of God. Kingdoms. And so in that sense, United States of America is a kingdom. What we're experiencing life in Denver, Colorado is a kingdom life. It's a life where we're separated from the kingdom of God and we're attempting to find a way to make our names great, to satisfy our longings, to find security and peace and joy and love and acceptance through the things we can do in our own power. And we're doing so as, a human, as humanity separated from the kingdom of God. And what Matthew's saying is Jesus has come back to lay claim of all of it. The king has come back and he's going to infiltrate every kingdom that's opposed to him and every nation and he's going to establish his authority as the rightful king. He's coming as this kind of return of the king moment. The king's coming back and he's establishing his kingdom and he's inviting every human being into the kingdom of God saying, you don't have to keep trying to forge your own way to life. You don't have to keep resisting my reign. You don't have to keep staying stuck in shame. You don't have to keep spinning your wheels. You don't have to keep being anxious and depressed. You don't have to keep fighting against hopelessness. I'm here and I've come to establish the kingdom of God. And I'm the king and I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And I want people to follow me and to give their allegiance to me and to be a part of my kingdom from all people groups all over. And this is what Jesus has been doing for the past 2,000 years is laying claim to his world. It's his world. All of it is his, and he's bringing it under his reign. And Matthew is saying, good news, the kingdom of God has come. Good news, the king you've been waiting for is here. Good news, you don't have to keep living in rebellion. Good news, God is coming to give mercy and to restore the world that you long for. And the kingdom that, that Jesus has come to fulfill, though, Is not what the people of Israel would have expected. It's not what they expected. In fact, a whole theme that's strung throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew, kind of a a subsurface theme, is this concept that, that Jesus is continuing to poke against the expectations of the kingdom that were prevalent in his society. So the Israelites had a certain expectation of what a king would be like and what he was going to do for them. And they had an expectation about what their problem was in the world. And that was Roman occupation. You know, they had been defeated by Babylon. They had been defeated by Persia. They had been infiltrated by the Greeks. They had been then kind of occupied by the Romans. And they're kind of living in this life. We're waiting for a king to to fix our situation. And that's not what Jesus was primarily coming to do not the way they expected, at least. And so, in fact, throughout the whole story, we're going to see this, especially in the first four chapters, Jesus is just poking at their concepts of what a kingdom would be like, saying, my kingdom's different than you expect. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road for us today, that we as Christians, just like the Jewish audience in the first century would have done, we try to make Jesus, this king, fit into our concept of kingdom. So we have a concept. Here we are in 21st century Denver, and we have a concept of kingdom, You have a concept of where love comes from and where meaning comes from. You have a concept of the type of sacrifices that you need to make to get the good life that you long for. You have a concept of where security comes from and peace comes from and what community ought to look like. We have these concepts and they are likely more shaped by the kind of cultural norms than by what Jesus says and what we see in God's Word. And so then we learn about Jesus and we want to follow him and we want to love him, but we're trying to make him fit in our attempt to build the good life that's very common in our culture. And so you share, off, most of us, share in many ways a concept of the, of the way life ought to be with all of the neighbors around us. And so what we're typically, most of us, not all of us maybe, trying to do in this kingdom, which again is like a kingdom, is not like, it's not like God's country, you know, but we had Christians established America. It's like, no, it's just like all the kingdoms, There are Christians and there are non-Christians, but the kingdom of this country is not the kingdom of God. And there are spiritual powers that have influenced and there are cultural norms and rebellious tendencies that have influenced practices and behaviors and cultures and and kind of a way of thinking about life that has shaped all of us. And so so we kind of, we have this concept that like if, if the economy goes well and if I get the right spouse and have the right friends and... Get into a home and can build some equity in the home, and maybe upgrade my home a little bit later. And I can get a job and then get a raise and have my kids and save for retirement and have some fun and be like like secure, but also like free and go on vacations and recreate in the mountains. Like if I can do it, then I have the life I I, I want. And if Jesus can help me with it, that's awesome. I want Jesus. That'd be great to have like a God if that also helps me with the sense of guilt and shame that I kind of struggle with here and there. And kind of like religious and religious longings that are in me. Great, but we want Jesus to fit in our project. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. But what happens for every single person in the room is there's a gap between what you're wanting to kind of gain out of that at an internal soul level and what you're actually getting out of it. Right? There's a sense of like, there's the life I'm longing for and the life I'm actually experiencing, there's a gap. And so you can pose for a little while and you can kind of like keep thinking a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And, uh, and for a young church, like you might have some years left to give on your a little bit more, on your little bit more journey. Um, I'm not saying you ought to, but I just find often that people are like, well, I still think it'll work. I still think it'll work. I'm not trying to be like a pessimist. It's not, it's not gonna work. It's just, it won't. It's not designed to It's not designed to work. It's building a kingdom apart from the kingdom of God. It's trying to use the king for his stuff, which is the problem in the very beginning. And so we try to fit Jesus in and we're going. And then in that gap, in that gap anxiety and depression and fear and loneliness and longings and shame and guilt and not doing enough, sense of failure, sense of loss, or I feel like I'm doing better than somebody else at least. And so we deal with the insecurity of the gap of what we feel just by feeling better than somebody else, which is pride, a different form of insecurity. And then that feeling and that emotional tension and the internal like dissonance is, is not pleasant. And so we find ways to escape that unpleasant feeling, which is what all these kind of escapist behaviors do, which is, we've been talking about for the past several weeks, all the kind of rituals we've formed to numb ourselves from those unpleasant feelings, to addict ourselves with technology and TV and games and and sporting events and news cycles and all of it. We're just going and going and going, finding some way. And, and those can be fine things. It can also be narcotics and alcohol abuse and porn addiction and all that, that just kind of escapes those moments of dissonance, numbs that feeling. And all we're doing is we're taking the gap that was intended to point us to the longing for the kingdom, and we're muting it. And then we try to fit Jesus into the whole system. And It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And I think that's pretty common for most of us. Again, pick your poison, right? Like whatever your thing is, but all of us have a thing. If we went one by one, all of us have a thing we're longing for, some emotional dissonance about not getting the thing we long for and some way to kind of like deal with that emotional dissonance. And that's designed to make us, the kingdom of God has come and I don't have to keep doing this and I don't have to be stuck in this kind of toxic, destructive cycle and I can be liberated and set free and loved and secure in the presence of a king who's building a kingdom that will reign forever and ever and ever. I don't have to earn it or achieve it or accomplish it or or manipulate it. I can just receive this gift of God's kingdom and his love. Good news, the kingdom of God is here and Jesus is inviting us in. And it's not just good news for you and me, it's good news for your neighbors. So we talk about Jesus is going to go through the story inviting people like, uh, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Like I'm I'm going to bring you into my kingdom and then I'm going to send you out to invite more people to participate in my kingdom. But it doesn't feel that motivating to invite people into the kingdom when we're swimming in the same pond. When we're kind of like still succumbing to the same cultural ideologies and the same sort of kingdom principles that in certain ways are opposed to the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is going to do all through the story is show us again and again what God's kingdom is like. He's inviting us, come with me, stay with me, experience my love, rest in my presence, watch my way of life, come under my yoke, and I'm gonna show you the kingdom of God and I'm gonna invite you to participate in it. It's a powerful reality. And so here's the question you have to ask, that we have to ask. What kingdom are you living for? What kingdom are you living for? And if you get honest with yourself, that question is going to take you to some really significant places of your heart. What kingdom are you living for? Are you wanting Jesus in your kingdom? Or are you willing to say, Jesus, I want your kingdom? I want your kingdom. I want the world to know your reign. I want the world to know your love. I want the world to know your power. I want to give myself, lay down my life for Christ and his kingdom. And that's what he's calling his followers to do. Lay it down on behalf of me and my kingdom. And that's actually a powerful invitation because it's an invitation towards a liberating experience away from this this plight of humanity. As we spin our wheels here and, and every. Nation and people group has our own different ways of spinning our wheels. And there's beauty in culture. There's goodness. There are wonderful things to be experienced. And those things ought to get us to long for the, the presence of a king who created it all. So, what kingdom are you living for? Well, here's the second invitation or the second point of good news in this passage um, that Jesus came for people like you for people like, like you. He, he came for you. In fact, in, in this whole genealogy, um, at, at the kind of most basic level, the genealogy is just proving what Matthew just said. He said, Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for from David, from Abraham. So watch. I'm going to start with Abraham, take you to David, take you to the deportation to Babylon, take you to Jesus. I'm just going to like draw the line, right? See? see, I'm proving my point. Is that what he's doing? He's just like, real quick, hop in the Old Testament, like, I need to prove it. So I'm going to go to the Ancestry.com of the genealogies of the Old Testament and put it in here just to prove that he is. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's there, but he's doing so many things in this genealogy. He's making tons of decisions under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One of those decisions, which is interesting, is he's actually omitting certain people, which was a totally common thing to do. He's not lying. He's not tricking you. He's not spinning anything. It was basic kind of like Hebrew narrative like approach that he could order things and structure things in a way to to say something. So he structured it in these generations of 14, which are bringing to this moment where we're actually expecting Jesus. And there's a lot there that I wish I had time to get into. We should talk about it sometime. Talk to me. I get pumped about this kind of stuff. Um, but these moments of like all of these anticipations, all of these longings for the culmination that everything the world has been waiting for, even this experience of like jubilee, freedom, all things new, everything we've been expecting, he's saying Jesus is, is the culminating point. He's not just another king in the line of kings. He's the culminating point. And it's a powerful thing. But what he's also doing, if you're a Hebrew reader, a Jewish reader in the first century, you're looking at the names of these leaders and you're seeing broken story after broken story after broken story. It is a story of failure. Jesus hasn't come for the religious elites. He hasn't come for those that had it all together and figured it out. He's actually come to redeem people who have failed, people who have turned away, people who have fallen short. We're going to see that next week when we learn about the name Jesus. And that he's come to save us from our sins. This is a story of people who had failed. Jesus has come for the broken, for the people that didn't get it all together, that finally admit my project isn't working and I've been doing it in rebellion against you. I've been resisting your love, resisting your presence, resisting your reign, walking away from your goodness over and over and over, going back to these practices in my life to try to build a kingdom away from you. I've totally failed. And Jesus is like, I came for you. You're exactly who I've come for. Not the people who don't need a physician, but the people who do need a physician. Not the people who don't need a savior, the people who do need a savior. And it's stunning to see who he includes in the story. He includes also these um, four women before we even get to Mary, who we'll, we'll talk about Mary more next week. But before we get to Mary, he includes these four women um, in this story. And just the inclusion of women in the story says something powerful that's going to be unpacked throughout the rest of the story. Genealogies in this day and age, in a, in a patriarchal society that had a really negative understanding of gender, was, was to include women in the genealogy in the first place was an, a powerful dignifying move. And you see this in the, in the relationship and the nature of Jesus all throughout. As he goes towards people who are socially marginalized, who are oppressed, who are not valued, who are overlooked, who are kind of pushed aside, who are not esteemed in culture, and he dignifies them over and over and over in that culture, the way he dignified women was so countercultural, so powerful, so provocative, and he did it again and again and again. Some of the primary heroes in the story, even if you think about the resurrection scene at the end of the story, when all the male disciples have fleed and they're all freaking out. It's the women coming near to the tomb. It's the women that he entrusts with this good news and sends out as these kind of like bearers of the good news, like the first apostles bringing the good news to the others, saying like, we were there, we saw him, he's risen, he's alive. He does this kind of stuff over and over and over. He dignifies us in our sense of feeling marginalized, feeling ostracized, feeling alone, feeling on the outside, feeling lonely. And like his, The dignity he shows is, is stunning. But it's not just that they're women, they're also Gentile women. Um, You start with Tamar, who is a Canaanite, and then you have Rahab, who was from Jericho, and then you have Ruth, who was a Moabitess, and then um, at the end of the story, you have Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I think she might have been a Hittite. It's hard to know. But you have this, like, experience of, like, wait, he didn't just come for Israel, which was really pushing against the expectations in that culture. This is the king of Israel. He's going to come to establish Israel. And he's like, Matthew's like, no, 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 no. The whole story, he's been including the nations. That his kingdom is a reconciling kingdom. His kingdom isn't a dividing kingdom. He's come to break down dividing walls, to push against barriers, to bring reconciliation for people from every ethnic group, every socioeconomic class, every culture, every tongue. He's bringing them all together. He's everyone's king. Every human being on the earth, Jesus is their king. And Matthew's saying the people of his kingdom aren't just Israelites, it's a kingdom for everybody. And it's a kingdom that breaks down dividing walls of hostility as Jesus brings people into his presence. And that theme will be piercing all through the story. The strongest people of faith are people like a Roman soldier or Samaritans or others outsiders. And Jesus is saying, these people are the people of my kingdom. He's come for people like you. The last observation in that piece is what what he says about these stories and the particular women he chooses aren't merely Gentiles. But they're people that embody incredible um, experiences of brokenness. Um, Tamar, the first one who was the you know had who had essentially had Judah's child. Judah is the kind of like the patriarch of King David. And there's a promise that from Judah's seed, uh, seed King David's going to come. Well, actually, Tamar was his daughter-in-law. Her husband died, and Judah was going to be unfaithful to his responsibility to take care of her. And so Tamar, actually, this sounds weird, but the Bible frames it this way. In an act of faith, dresses herself up, essentially as a, poses as a prostitute, seduces Judah. Judah is ready for it, sleeps with her, and they have a child. And Jesus is saying, that's a part of my story. These are part of my people. There's pain and there's brokenness and there's shame and there's darkness. And he's not tucking it away. He's not saying, my people are all the kind of prettiest people of the world who had their life together. And I'm looking for like the cream of the crop and kind of like top tier folks. He's like, no, 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 no. My story has always been working through the broken working through shame, working through trauma, working through deviations and norms that that kind of like push against, working through people that people are embarrassed of. And he's always doing that. And you get to the same thing with Rahab, who was a prostitute, had been a prostitute in Jericho for years and years. And just thinking about her story and the pain she'd experienced. And Jesus isn't ashamed to call her one of his people. His love for her, the, the power of her faith in the moment where she sheltered these spies from Israel as an act of faith in God and his kingdom. She's like, she's mine. She's a part of my kingdom. She's my daughter. Like you see it again. Ruth was pretty, pretty baller. Ruth was just pretty great. I was <laughs> straight, straight through. Kind of sketchy scene in the middle of Ruth, if you're familiar with it. But overall, Ruth was, Ruth was like, she's, she's pretty great. But then you get to Bathsheba. You get to Bathsheba and, you know, it's like hard to understand what all was happening, but it seems like she was severely sexually potentially abused by a male in power. And what that meant for her and then to have that man in power Essentially, consign her husband to death and just like talk about messing you up and Jesus is like this is a part of my story this is I work even in the midst of all this pain I've come for the broken my people are people that have experienced brokenness and trauma. They've participated in brokenness and they've been affected by brokenness. And I'm bringing them in to, to care for the weary, to bring rest to the weary, to, to mend and bind up the brokenhearted, to cleanse the people that are experiencing shame, to, to wash away this guilt, to forgive people and to, to bring them together into my love and to make them the people of my kingdom. The kingdom doesn't require you, the king of the kingdom doesn't require you to get, to get your act together. He's the one that's come to mend your broken hearts, to give rest to your weariness, to give you love in the face of loneliness, to give you hope in the midst of depression, to wash away the shame that you've been lugging around. And that's taxing your soul even today. This is the king, and he's inviting us to follow him. And he does it throughout the whole story, going to people and just saying, you follow me and follow me. And sometimes you see the crowds will come and they'll follow Him. And then things don't go the way the whole crowds want. And so people from the crowds depart and wander away. And the same is true. We can gather around Jesus and we want him to be this this thing. But if he stops being what we need him to be and what we think we want him to be, we are tempted to, to walk away. But what you see through the story is those who stay near to him, they watch... Him show sacrificial love and humility and kindness and a care for the poor and faithfulness to God. And he walks in the power of the Spirit and he's faithful to God's word and he represents God's character and he's confronting oppression and pushing against opposition. And all the way through, it's this like beautiful picture of Jesus. So then, why did they kill him? Why did they kill him at the end? Because he wasn't just a good teacher and a moral example. If that's all he was, they wouldn't kill him for healing a guy. They're not just killing him because he ate some food on the Sabbath. They're not killing him because he, he showed kindness to a leper. They're killing him because he claimed to be the king. And his kingdom was a threat to their kingdom. His kingdom was going to push against and challenge their authority in the way they were trying to hold on to life. And in the face of that, the Jewish leaders and then the Roman leaders killed him. They crucified him, but he laid his life down. The whole story, it's clear. He is aiming for that moment because he's not just a king, he's come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And through his death, through his sacrificial death, we actually see what a king is like, what a king was made to be, what power was given to Jesus for, which is not to be used to abuse or to dominate or to domineer. The power is given to sacrifice. That the enthronement of this king is on a cross. His victory comes through his death. His, His healing power comes through his blood. And we see that come to its full fruition in his resurrection and Jesus is risen from the dead and in this risen state people are learning like glory comes through death love comes through sacrifice victory comes through failure all of these things and Jesus is then breathing on a people he says I have all authority the whole world is mine and I want everybody in my kingdom so go make disciples go tell people everywhere good news the kingdom of God has come it's breaking in good news, the king is inviting you in, people just like you and me, broken failures who have turned every which way. We don't have to get our act together. The king has died for us and he loves you and he says, come in to the kingdom. Experience rest and life and love and all the things you long for. This is the king and this is his kingdom and his invitation to you and me even today is follow me. Follow me and I'll give you life. Let's pray. Um, Even now, Holy Spirit, would you reign over this moment? And would you speak, comfort, protect? Just just this awareness, even as we talk about your kingdom and your ability to liberate people from other approaches to life that are destructive. Um, I just feel that reality there is warfare in these moments. There are spiritual powers that do not want us to give full allegiance to you. Don't want us to know your love and your tenderness. And so I pray, Father, that you protect people against um, accusative voices, that they'd hear your voice. No, no, no. My kingdom is for people just like you. Just like you. I want you to know my love. So I want you to ask that question again What, what kingdom have you been living for? Where have you learned the way of that kingdom? from God's word, from spending time with Jesus and seeing his life and his love and his character? Or is it from cultural norms around us? What would it it mean today to hear the voice of Jesus crying to you? Follow me. Maybe you've, you've been wandering away for a bit or maybe you've never really followed him you've been around Christianity or you're brand new to the church, but you've never really followed him and said, I give my allegiance to you. You're my king. You're my savior. You're my Lord. I want to follow you. So whether you've been wandering, uh, whether you've never known him before, or maybe even just today, just to get a, a bigger sense of like, no, this life that he's called me to is good. I want to keep going and persevering. Um, I want to ask, what, what would that next step look like? A step of faithfulness. Jesus, I want to follow you all the days of my life. I want to walk with you. I want to wake up and spend time with you. I want to know that you're with me throughout the day. I want to go to work. I want to spend time with my friends and my family and my roommates and my housemates and my spouse. I want to walk with you. And I want to be a part of your kingdom. Not just a person in the kingdom but a person participating in its movement in this kingdom movement and father that's what we're asking that you would unleash in us a passion for your kingdom a passion for you jesus we would treasure you as our king and that we'd be a part of what you're doing in this world to lay claim of all of it for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever and ever and ever amen